You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul explains how the first three words of the Bible are practically unintelligible without a working knowledge of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Light in the Johannine Gospel appears very early in the second verse of the Gospel of John. But ask a seminarian to write a paper about the meaning of light in that specific verse. And notice how the paper starts quoting the rest of the Gospel of John. Just like that. And notice here. I'm not trying to be arrogant, nor am I philosophizing. I'm beginning with the data. So without realizing, you as a student, hopefully you'll stick with John, otherwise, you know, you won't finish the paper like light in the New Testament, John. You have to. There is no other way. But this word is already at the beginning. And I'm going to take a lot of time to handle. In the beginning, created God. You have three very important words in the Old Testament. They are lumped together at the beginning. And you're just starting. And that is why, friends, the trek, the itinerary is very important. Because it demands Patience on our part. Meaning, even a gifted preacher cannot just wing a sermon on the first three words of Genesis to his parish by just blabbering for one hour. Unless that person knows very well the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. As simple as that. And that's a big task. And for those who react towards my stress on this issue, I always remind them of Matthew 23, addressed to the leaders. Their responsibility is to teach Remember in Ezekiel, everybody else will be judged on their behavior. Ezekiel will be judged on his behavior, but his behavior in the story of the book is linked to whether he will have communicated God's message to the others or not. That's his business. Okay? And I like this statement in English and in Arabic. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> you can say it to the other people, but you can't say it to the one who sent you. <laughs> he may well shoot you. In Arabic, we are a little bit more sophisticated, you know. 
the Americans like to use the Western movies, shoot the messenger and so on. <laughs> no, the Arabs say, وَعَلَى الرَّسُولِ And your duty upon the apostle, notice the word Rasul. And we know that apostle means someone who is sent. Al-Balagh, the communication. In Arabic you say, you know, when you arrive at the airport, Balighni, inform me, tell me. Okay? So let's ease into these things that we can proceed together. I spoke about the light in the Jahannam Gospel. More important for us, and we will be discussing this because that word appears already in Genesis 1-2, which is the spirit. The spirit in Ezekiel. Oh, no problem, and then you start with RSV. Even KJV. But it's a calamity because this translation and many others, they do the same thing. They have three renderings, spirit with a capital S, spirit with a lowercase, and wind. I mean, it's very funny. How do you decide? Richard, go back to your teacher. I mean, who tells you that here it means wind? And here, oh, there was a committee of so many people that prayed together for three hours before sitting down to translate the RSP. And Orthodox were members of that committee. I know this. But my question still stands like the question of Richard's professor. <laughs> How do they know that here it's wind and here it's spirit and there it's spirit to the capital? So please take very seriously this example. Notice in my teaching I use approachable examples. In other words, you yourself can go and check. Open and write, you know, you can Google and you will see that you have three translations. So what is happening now? But the worst thing about all that is when we go back to my first statement regarding this Jewish-Israeli woman who hears Isaac and he laughs as the same thing, then you are not hearing the original, which is ruah. Or in Arabic, ruh. We don't need this patah for tivum. But then your question is not what is the meaning of ruah in that verse. The question, what is the function? What does it do? And my big strike on this issue is that ruah, notice wind actually in Ezekiel, is introduced as ruah sa'ara, a mighty wind. A mighty wind scatters. It's only in chapter 37. Not in Ezekiel. Watch out. People tell me, in Ezekiel, the spirit brings the bones together. No, it is only in chapter 37 that the Spirit does that. Let me jump to Paul again, because here we are also... My intention in my podcast is to teach you the message, obviously, not to impress you with my knowledge. Notice how, in Paul, the Spirit 
the reaction of all of us is that it's very positive. And yet, when he forces the Corinthian community to expel the young man, he has, you gathered with my spirit, you have to kick him out. So here again, is it good, is it bad, I don't know. Which text are you referring to? Later, this becomes very important when we get to those philosophical questions. Is God good or bad? Well, I don't know. (laughs) This is a stupid question. I don't know what God is. I have to open scripture to figure out. And then I see what he's doing. And slowly on you will learn that very often what you consider bad and so on and so forth, and you all know that. So, when we get to Ezekiel 37, we have no less than seven times in verses 5 through 10 where this ruah, which is usually translated as spirit, is rendered as breath suddenly. So here we have to add a fourth word to the spirit. That's strange because you have another word for breath which is noshama in Hebrew. We're going to meet it in Genesis too. So why suddenly you're using breath? Again, let's say, go back to my example about this Jewish-Israeli woman. If you're hearing it, you link it to breath. Except in the case of the plural ruhot that is translated as winds. You see how the authors take their liberty. They like to make things understandable for the North American of 1952. (laughs) Remember, those Americans listen to the Weather Channel and you didn't. Okay, I'm asking you again to make this effort. So, breath is not a simplistic issue. Again, let me go to a verse. In Genesis, in 2.7 we hear, Then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Nishmat Hayim, very important words, Hayim, life. And man became a living being, which is a silly translation of Nefesh Haya. You have twice the word life. So you may very well easily connect it with the life that is spoken of in Ezekiel. But what I'm saying, are you allowed to hear neshama when Ezekiel is using ruach? Yeah, but it's nicer, you know, because in chapter 1, the ruach is destructive and also in the later chapters. Let's go for something positive this time. And then it is as though you're doing a Christmas pageantry. Suddenly you have a cute little boy who is 
like a lamb. <laughs> okay? And then he starts crying and calling his mother by his name. Well, lambs don't do that. <laughs> anyway, friends. Later we shall discuss this matter because the animals are referred to as nefesh hayya in Genesis. You see the complexity of the matter. It's simple but not simplistic. Here I must make this aside, you know, and I hope my friend Tom Dykstra, who edited many of my earliest books and who's still a very good friend of mine, uh, I'm going to make a holy joke, as I refer to them in my class, or jokes unto salvation, is that Tom used to argue a lot in the past until he married an Iraqi woman whose name is Faride. Now, Faride means unique. Later on, we're going to hear the verb farad, parad, to spread. And the people say, wait a minute, Fahapo, are you telling me that unique does not mean at the same time that you are one of a kind and you have a lot of people who spread as one? Well, that's the problem. Excuse me, hearers, that's your problem, not mine. It's because for you, a word has one meaning, and I keep reminding you of the commoner words in any language where in the dictionary you have one, two, sometimes three columns of examples that tells you what, that take doesn't mind take. Or I like better this example. It's on all my podcasts, Father Mark. The famous climb down of Richard Burton in Where Eagles Dare. I've always learned that climbing is up. <laughs> Suddenly, I had to learn from that Welsh by the name of Richard Burton who was telling this British climb down I, mean, I learned something <laughs> I didn't say Richard Burton doesn't know what he's talking about how can you address a Welsh that they don't know English or an Irish Irish and Welsh they are the English speaking people so climb down so and all of you who know Greek, you know that you have to learn with so many verbs the following preposition because it changes the meaning. And I would like to honor the late Father John Romanidis, whom many of you have heard of. And he was, in my book, in my book, the only honorable orthodox patristic theologian. I say that because once we were together at a conference in Minsk, Bielorussia, and we were sitting together. We were colleagues since the early 70s at the Balamant School of Theology. So we know one another from many, many years ago. And he said verbatim, Father Paul, 
it's very clear. My approach to the Bible is that the fathers understood it correctly and I go from them backwards to read scripture. You begin with scripture and you read forward. Nicely, simply, he made a statement. The respect is there, the love is there, but he recognizes those two approaches. But I would like to make my readers that he used the word, my assumption is that the fathers understood correctly. He doesn't speak like all the other Orthodox. The fathers were right. And thus, half of the Orthodox end up by, then why really bother with the Bible in this barbaric language? And notice, especially the Orthodox of North America who don't know Greek, they know English, and they speak about the Greek fathers. But these are allowable jokes. We are in the 21st century. It is still politically correct. And another critique I have here about the use of scriptural God and scriptural Christ, which I launched, and it is used very badly by many of my colleagues to impress the people, that there is only one God, and it is the scriptural God, and then you start reading Gregory of Nyssa. So they are doing exactly what Romanides told me is doing, but at least he never plagiarized me. So you have to be very careful about the people who use this terminology, which is strictly mine with all due respect. For me, scriptural God and scriptural Christ is not the reality of the eternal God or the Christ, but it is the God or the Christ, as I said at the beginning, it's a language. It comes out of the book. That's how it is revealed to you in that sense. And it is not revealed to you as in patristic thought and Simeon, the new theologian, and so on and so forth. Which brings me to speak against that famous direct experience of God. I prayed God yesterday and he answered me. You know, you can't do that. You can't do. God spoke and answered already in scripture. This is where I scandalized not only the Orthodox but the Lutherans in Finland when I told them that by scriptural God I mean that God can be found strictly only between the covers of the Bible. He cannot be a scriptural God and at the same time outside let alone before or after the Bible. And the Orthodox should see that. They are the worst in this sense. I mean, in our tradition, 
the gospel book is Christ, for heaven's sakes. That's why you have it closed on the holy table. Then you have to open it and start reading. And you don't read it all. You don't have time. That's why you're assigned a passage. And he comes out. And thus he is within. By within, understand, in the words, within the covers of the Bible. In this sense, he is within the Bible. No one can fathom fully what I'm trying to say as someone who knows not only Arabic, but Arabic grammar. And this is what I learned this from my friend Richard Benton, the famous Ibn Ezra in Spain, who used to make fun of his colleague, the Jews, by telling them, but you don't know Arabic. And what he meant, Arabic grammar. Very important to understand. It's the most developed grammar of Semitic languages. So that's very important. And my last comment is that one has to remember that vocabulary is not just immediate meaning of words. Remember what I said earlier about the lexicon. You have to explain to the people the words you are using. But in the past, you had to make the effort to conclude for yourself. Because, like the professor of Richard, who tells you that they are right? Who tells you that this Orthodox writer understand the word icon? How many times we Orthodox make fun of others that they didn't get it? So we don't know. You have to make the effort to do that. And thus you come to a conclusion. You begin with a presupposition, a supposition, but then one discovers the connotation of a word or phrase and does not impose one's preconceptions. Again, in the beginning created God. Oh, everybody knows what the beginning is. Created, who doesn't? And God, come on, friends. Amen, goodbye. <laughs> well, tell me what it is. Don't tell me everybody knows. You know the famous joke about it's the people who don't know that begin with everybody knows that. And to make happy my friend Father Mark Bulos here is that even I received once because my students knew that I was a fan of Star Trek. One of them gave me a book which is Star Trek vocabulary. <laughs> there we go. How can you follow if you don't know? You can't stop every time what is that, what is that. It's the same thing. Another example that you all know is the Lord of the Rings. Vocabulary dictionary. You have to learn the meaning of these words. Now, if the author is living, it makes it easier. But if the author is not living, then it's more complex. And let me end. I know the West doesn't like me. One of the blurbs on my book was that 
Father Paul is consciously Semitic when he wrote that book. Well, these things not even Father Mark and Richard Benton know, so they are going to learn. I can see already their smile here. That I heard it myself, people speaking. Birdy language, Asfuri. Asfur in Arabic means bird. Asfuri, you know, the ending E in Semitic languages pertaining to. The other word was Wazwaza. Notice the sound of Z in it. Because people, at one point, under the Ottomans, to protect themselves, produced a language. This is historical. It did exist until now in Lebanon. You hear people, if they want to, they say, well, we're going to speak Asfuri now so that the others would not understand what I say. And the funny thing, actually, you can Google and find it. I found it myself. And you have a show in which one of the actors now and then speaks Asfuri. And the whole thing is to add the sound Z in words when you're speaking. But the people who are not trained into that cannot follow. But he's speaking. The rest of the word is Arabic. Otherwise, his interlocutor would not understand him. He cannot speak Asfuri with the Cypriot. Okay? It's not a holy joke. It's not unto salvation. But it is unto helping you to understand what I'm saying. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.